Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On June 8, 2004, a group of detectives, forensic specialists, members of the press, and one 57-year-old historian named Sylvia Petham gathered in Columbia Cemetery in Boulder, Colorado. It was a strange assortment of people, but they had one thing in common, the mysterious story of Jane Doe. For the past four years, All of those in attendance had been working around the clock to try and find the identity of the woman whose grave they congregated around. The group shared a moment of silence around the unnamed woman whose body was found splayed out in a creek bed 50 years ago. But the quiet came to an abrupt end as a massive backhoe dug its claw into the cemetery dirt. Jane's body was being exhumed in hopes of obtaining DNA evidence and resources for a facial reconstruction. However, the team was shocked to find that inside of the grave was not a coffin, but Jane's bare bones laying exposed in the earth. The photographers and journalists swarmed to catch a glimpse, and police promptly set up crime scene tape to contain the situation. But Sylvia Petham still managed to get a good look. And while many were horrified to be put in such close proximity to human remains, she felt an odd sense of purpose wash over her. She stood fixated and vowed that from that point onward, Jane would not just be a pile of bones laying in the ground. Sylvia would stop at nothing to ensure that Jane Doe received justice. And most importantly, her identity. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Jane Doe, an unidentified woman that was found murdered in Boulder, Colorado. This week, we'll cover the discovery of Jane's body and the search for her identity. Next week, we'll discuss the hunt for Jane's murderer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 
It was a gorgeous spring day in Boulder, Colorado on April 8, 1954. Nineteen-year-old roommates and freshmen at the University of Colorado, Wayne Swanson and James Andes, had just finished up the last of their midterms and were eager to take advantage of the lovely weather. The two students lived together in an old two-story house that was only a short drive from Boulder's lush hiking trails. So Wayne and James bounded out of their shared home and into Wayne's Chevrolet. Fifteen minutes later, the quaint college town had disappeared behind them, and all they could see were mountain ranges and tall forests of bristlecone pines. They pulled up to Boulder Falls, and while the trail's titular waterfall was only a short walk away, the two decided to take the scenic route. As Wayne and James wandered through the winding paths that framed the creek, they snapped photographs and gawked at the stunning natural beauty. The water level was at its seasonal low, and much of the creek bed was exposed. They took advantage of this once-a-year occasion and walked down to the sides of the trail that were usually covered by the water. Wayne and James carried on along the eastern side of the creek for a good quarter of a mile before they turned back. They walked up from the waterbed and onto the shoulder of the road. Suddenly, James saw something that stopped him dead in his tracks. Wait, hold on. Do you see that? Uh, that thing down by the edge of the creek, on the rocks there. Yeah, it looks like a dummy or a doll or something. Ha! Maybe those guys from Alpha Sig finally dumped that mannequin they stole from Sears last semester. Maybe. I don't know. It kind of looks like... You don't think? Let's just go check. As the two college students got closer... They realized they weren't looking at a mannequin. The badly decomposed body of a young woman was splayed out on the creek bed. She was nude, and while much of her flesh had rotted off, what remained was badly bruised. But Wayne and James didn't take much time to inspect the scene. The terrified 19-year-olds darted to the car and headed straight back into town. They pulled up to Boulder County's courthouse just as the sun was setting and found Sheriff Art Everson in his first floor office. Good evening, boys. What can I help you with? By the creek. There was. We found. She's. We found a body, Sheriff. She's dead. We don't know who she is, but she's dead. And and you're positive? Sometimes our imaginations can get the best of us and. You can see her bones sticking out. Her face. It's. The skin is... All right, all right, that's enough. I can tell you two are upset and have probably had quite the day. If I get the coroner, can you lead us to the body? Yes, sir. Sheriff Everson recruited coroner George Howe, and the four of them drove back down to Boulder Creek with a hearse following not far behind. By now it was dark out, so the group descended into the rocky valley with only flashlights to guide them. After a few minutes of walking, they found her. The boys winced as the light shone on the same decaying body they had discovered only hours ago. Altogether, they moved the unidentified corpse onto a gurney and covered her with a sheet. She was put into the hearse, and they drove back into town. Wayne and James were sent home, and the sheriff and coroner drove the body to Howe's Mortuary, owned and operated by George's brother, Norman. They placed the woman's limp body onto an operating table and turned on the fluorescent lights overhead. 
For the first time, the brutalized state of the corpse's body was visible in full detail. Her long hair was riddled with sticks and pine needles. The paint on her nails was chipped and faded, but still clearly well manicured. The skin on her neck and face had either decayed or been chewed away by animals. After an autopsy was performed, it became clear that her laundry list of injuries extended beyond what was just visible on the surface. There were fractures to her skull, jaw, left arm, collarbone, and ribs. Judging by the damage done to her head, it was likely she had sustained a major concussion as well. Most concerning to the sheriff was the fact that the body had no unique identifying features. No birthmarks, no tattoos, nothing to differentiate her from the countless young women that were just like her. About five foot three, 110 pounds with shoulder length brown hair. It was going to take some real detective work to figure out who this woman was and how she ended up dead. And the very next morning, the investigation began. Sheriff Everson was met by detectives Roy Hill and Roy Hendricks at the scene of the crime. In addition, a flock of photographers and writers from various local newspapers swarmed the creek bed where the body was found. After hours of searching, the police found no evidence whatsoever. Even though the first day of the investigation may have been anticlimactic, the media's response was anything but. The story of the mysterious corpse found amongst the rocky hills of Boulder ran in newspapers all throughout the country. Due to the fact that the body could not be named at the time, she was referred to as simply Jane Doe. Two weeks passed after Jane Doe's body was found and no leads turned up. But that wasn't for lack of trying. Bob Looney, a journalist at the Daily Camera, published articles daily pleading with the public to come forward with any information that could help find answers about Jane. And Looney wasn't the only one who remained determined. The Boulder police did a thorough scan that covered 10 miles in every direction of where Jane Doe's body was found. They even found themselves sifting through an abandoned cabin in a remote mining community for clues. But it seemed that no matter how far they traveled, there was nothing that could help paint the picture of what happened to Jane Doe. But one thing was certain. An innocent young woman had lost her life. And as far as the city officials were concerned, respects had to be paid. So they announced their plans to bury Jane's body in the Columbia Cemetery. However, while their intentions were good, some locals found the city's decision to be hasty and inconsiderate. So, do you think you'll go pay your respect at that poor girl's funeral? Of course, but that's someone's daughter, and she's getting placed in an unmarked grave by the city. Think about it. How would you feel if that was your child? I guess I never thought about it that way. She deserves a proper burial, but that's not what she's getting. Her coffin is probably going to look like it was made out of popsicle sticks, and I bet they'll give her a headstone that'll blow over at the slightest gust of wind. It's not right. She was someone's daughter. It turns out that quite a few people felt that way. Residents from Boulder, Denver, and numerous cities in Colorado started a fund to get Jane a proper funeral. Soon, the Daily Camera began publishing articles prompting Boulder residents to chip in as well. And on April 22, 1954, the money was put to good use. A 
Around 40 individuals, all dressed in suits and dresses, piled into a chapel on Spruce Street in downtown Boulder. These people came from different areas, had different occupations, and hardly knew one another. But they all had one thing in common, a deep compassion for Jane. Some in attendance had children and loved ones who had been missing for years. Others were just parents who couldn't help but imagine if their son or daughter was the one in that casket. Atop her coffin sat numerous ornate flower arrangements and one card. On it was written one simple phrase, sympathy to someone's daughter. After the service, those in attendance drove to Columbia Cemetery to watch Jane be put to rest. It was a shame that this poor girl remained unnamed and that her killer might never be found. But at the very least, her life received some honor with a proper burial. However, what none of the 40 people in attendance could have known was that 42 years later, one woman would be just as gripped by Jane Doe's story. That woman's name was Sylvia Pedham. And as far as she was concerned, Jane Doe deserved a lot more than a proper funeral. She deserved justice. Coming up, a writer and historian takes the mystery of Jane Doe into her own hands. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. On October 5th, 1996, the Boulder Historical Society held its first Meet the Spirits reenactment at the Columbia Cemetery. Thirty or so residents of Boulder got together and performed costumed monologues detailing the lives of some of the cemetery's most well-known residents. In attendance was 49-year-old Sylvia Pedham. She was in the cemetery that afternoon to deliver the story of the first female professor at the University of Colorado, a woman named Mary Rippon. However, not long into the reenactment, the story of another young woman became all she could think about. Please, give me back my name. No one knows who I am or how I came to die. Battered, beaten, and naked on the rocky edge of Boulder Creek. I was found in April 1954 by two college students out on a hike. My murderer, whoever he was, 
was brutal and vicious. A local monument maker carved Jane Doe into my gravestone. I was too young to die. Please give me back my name. Those first words lingered in Sylvia Penham's mind long after the performance. Not only that, but Jane was 20 years old. Sylvia had two daughters herself, and Jane's age was right in between her children. She couldn't help but think about this unnamed murder victim's own mother and how terribly she must have missed her child. Sylvia was not only a mother, but she was also a historian. Pretty soon, she found herself fixated by the story of Jane Doe. By the next year, it was a full-fledged obsession, and she decided to take it upon herself to bring whatever solace she could to Jane Doe's story. At first, Sylvia didn't know where to begin. But in 1998, after the Daily Camera offered her a job writing a weekly history column, she felt as though things were falling into place. With access to the newspaper's archives, she could begin digging into the events that surrounded Jane's death. After digging through a file cabinet containing all articles regarding murders, she finally pulled out a worn manila folder labeled Murder, Unidentified Girl. And sure enough, it contained every article written about Jane Doe dating back to 1954, the year of her death. Sylvia was able to unearth countless pieces of information regarding Jane's murder that had been lost to time. There was Sheriff Everson's speculation about the murderer and the murder weapon, a blunt and broad weapon, possibly the butt end of a gun. There was also the peculiar detail that very little blood was found at the crime scene. This led investigators to think that Jane's murderer had attacked her at a separate location and then brought the body to the creek. Then there was the question of how Jane's body even got down there in the first place. In the articles published back in the late 1950s, there was discussion of how Jane's assailant likely drove up to a parking lot that overlooked the creek and dropped her body down from 300 yards above. A detail that struck Sylvia as particularly disturbing was that Jane's body was likely disposed of while she was still half-conscious. It was not the injuries inflicted to her body that killed her, but shock and exposure to the frigid Colorado conditions. Having absorbed all the information about Jane Doe's death, Sylvia decided it was time to get out of the newspaper's filing cabinets and onto the streets of Boulder. Her first stop was the Carnegie Branch Library to meet with the county sheriff's deputy, Sergeant Dan Barber. Sylvia burst through the library doors and spared no time. She greeted Barber and asked if she could have access to the Jane Doe case files. However, the sergeant's answer was far from what Sylvia was hoping for. The Jane Doe case from 54? Yeah, I'm familiar, but I have some bad news for you. Our case files only date back to 1970. And even if there was a file at the station, members of the general public aren't allowed to read them. This certainly took the wind out of Sylvia's sails, but by no means did it slow her down. A week later, a co-worker at the Daily Camera overheard her lamenting about the setback and had some helpful advice. You say you're looking to get your hands on a case file? Well, are you familiar with the Freedom of Information Act? Basically, it allows any citizen to file a request to see any information collected by the federal government. Sylvia spared no time in filing her request. 
Within days, she received a phone call from an FBI agent at home. And once again, Sylvia found herself struggling to figure out how to proceed. Hello, Miss Petham. I regret to inform you that as of July 1st, 1993, an archivist deemed the Boulder Jane Doe case of 1954 to be no longer of use. The case file was purged in what is known as a routine records destruction. If Sylvia had only been a couple of years earlier, perhaps she could have cracked the case right then and there. But somehow, more resolute than ever, she pressed onwards. It was at this moment that she realized that she couldn't do this on her own. And if the FBI had all but forgotten Jane Doe's case entirely, it was time to extend her search elsewhere. So she took to the World Wide Web. Sylvia made a post on a genealogical website called rootsweb.com that was essentially an open call to anyone who might be a friend or relative of Jane's. Fourteen long months passed before anyone responded to the post. Then in June 2002, Sylvia received a response from a preschool teacher from Virginia. She shared Sylvia's passion for restoring justice to the victims of unsolved murders and offered to create a website for the cause. It was a small gesture, but a generous one, and helped Sylvia regain her confidence in her crusade. In early September 2003, Sylvia met with Lieutenant Phil West and Detective Steve Ainsworth. After the previous three years or so, Sylvia wasn't expecting much. However, as soon as she started detailing the case, the two seasoned officers lit up with excitement. These men weren't cut from the same cloth as those who had stifled Sylvia's mission in the years prior. They believed firmly that Jane was as deserving of justice as anyone else, and it was their duty to aid in any way that they could. But just because Sylvia had enlisted the help of two experienced law enforcement professionals didn't mean that the struggle was over. If anything, things were just getting started. And she had no way of knowing it, but the next six years of her life would have her taking part in exhumations, television interviews, and traveling all over the country in search of Jane Doe's true identity. Coming up, more people join in Sylvia's crusade. And now back to the story. By 2003, 56-year-old Sylvia Petham had dedicated nearly seven years of her life to solving the mystery of Boulder's Jane Doe, an unidentified corpse that was discovered in a creek by two college freshmen. And finally, after countless dead ends and setbacks, things were starting to go Sylvia's way. With some much-needed assistance from seasoned police officers Phil West and Steve Ainsworth, the first order of business was arranging an exhumation of Jane Doe's body. The two officers and Sylvia met with Boulder County's new sheriff, Joe Pelly, as well as the coroner to pitch their plan. Both the sheriff and the coroner were compelled by Jane Doe's case and wanted to move forward with the exhumation. But using taxpayers' money to cover the cost was out of the question. The team was given the green light as long as they could drum up the funding. This was an incredibly daunting task, but one that Sylvia did not shy away from. Instead of going on a mad dash to raise funds, Sylvia and the two officers decided to make the case as robust as possible. 
They skimmed countless old newspaper articles, tracked down the original forensic pathologist who performed Jane's autopsy in 1954, and found copies of crime scene photographs, police correspondences, and funeral records. With a collection of resources that would give any official case file a run for its money, the team hit the fundraising trail. The first group they approached, the Boulder History Museum, were immediately receptive. The board unanimously agreed to make a tax-deductible donation towards Jane Doe's exhumation. And if that wasn't enough, Sylvia managed to get a hold of 70-year-old Wayne Swanson, one of the men who found Jane's body 50 years prior. Sylvia drove almost four hours to meet him at the senior care facility where he was living at the time. Though it had been five decades since that fateful April afternoon, Wayne remembered finding Jane with shocking lucidity. Me and James, we were just out looking for something to do. A way to unwind after our exams. I still remember when we saw her. She looked so still, like a mannequin. I turned to James, and he didn't know what to say. We were so scared. Neither of us knew what to do. I'll never forget watching her body get lifted up and put onto that gurney. We were just kids. We weren't ready to see something like that. As their conversation continued, Sylvia was shocked to find out that neither Wayne nor James were interviewed by police after finding the body it became clear that police negligence may have been a huge part of the reason why this case remained unsolved almost 50 years after the fact. When Sylvia returned from her meeting with Wayne, she was surprised to have messages from multiple journalists on her answering machine. Word had spread about Jane Doe's exhumation and the reopening of her case. Only a few days later, Sheriff Pelly held a press conference to formally announce the force's renewed interest in Jane Doe's case, their plans for her body's exhumation, and the creation of the Jane Doe Fund. He discussed the importance of the case, regardless of how many years it had been left dormant. As far as he was concerned, it was still the responsibility of the Boulder Police Department to do everything in their power to identify her. Checks, emails, and letters began pouring in, all expressing support to Sylvia and all those working on her behalf. One email included a referral to the Vidoc Society, a group of forensic experts whose purpose was to provide guidance to both citizens and law enforcement agencies. And it just so happened that one of their fields of expertise was helping grease the wheels for exhumations. Sylvia sent their chairman a proposal, and by spring of 2004, he responded to say he'd happily lend a hand pro bono. And just like that, Jane Doe's body was scheduled to be retrieved from her burial site two months later. Things had gone from a crawl to a sprint seemingly overnight, and Sylvia was overjoyed. Not only did she have the support from the Vidoc Society and the police force, but her community as well. Jane Doe was all anyone in Boulder could talk about, and it felt as though the truth was closer than ever before. However, amidst the outpouring of support, there were a few people who didn't think very highly of Sylvia's crusade. One such naysayer even got an editorial published in a local newspaper speaking out against Jane's exhumation. Jane Doe, as she is known, should not be exhumed. She is the patron saint of all those who crave solitude. 
She should be left to hide in the shadows of complete peace and quiet as the Lord intended. She is somebody as long as she is nobody. Her memory lives only as long as her anonymity survives. As soon as we find her, we lose her. She truly dies forever the moment we bring her to life. Sylvia was unfazed by the negativity, perhaps even shocked that it took this long for someone to speak out against what she had been doing for the past eight years. But one active member on Jane Doe's website message board begged to differ. Our individual worth is based upon a mutual recognition that each of us counts. No matter what beliefs we hold, we have agreed to recognize our fellow man's individual identity, even when circumstances has robbed us of our identity. The ultimate denial of respect, murder, is our civilization's worst crime. Those who commit it must be hunted down to the end of their days. Jane Doe has become, in spirit, our friend and our family. We must honor her the way we would our own kin. It was true. The community that had formed around Jane Doe's case was far more familial than anything else, with Sylvia at the heart of it all. She found herself frequently stopping by Jane's grave at the Columbia Cemetery to leave flowers or just to silently pay her respects. As she laid down bouquets of lilies onto the wet earth, she couldn't help but think about how this quiet plot of land was set to be completely excavated in a matter of days. Jane's exhumation was coming up, and no one knew what to expect. When the day finally arrived, the plan was to have the local mortuary's maintenance department dig up Jane's grave and then transport her coffin to the morgue. However, as the claw of the backhoe sunk into the cemetery dirt that morning, unease came over Sylvia and the rest of her team. As layers of silt and earth fell away, there was no coffin, but wavy brown hair, bones, and remnants of a body bag. Jane's coffin had disintegrated underground, leaving her body to sit nakedly in her grave. The unexpected sight of Jane's remains nearly knocked Sylvia off her feet. But after the initial shock, she climbed down into the grave and gently laid her hand across her hair. She stayed by her side as the forensic specialist from the Vidoc Society passed her body, bone by bone, up from the grave and onto the surface. One of the major incentives to push for an exhumation was the retrieval of Jane's skull. With this, the team could potentially arrange for a facial reconstruction. However, with Jane's body laying exposed in her grave for decades, her skull had broken down into nearly 100 pieces. After six laborious weeks, a forensic anthropologist had finally managed to reassemble the skull entirely. In February 2005, the Vidoc Society arranged for the skull to be transported to an old butcher shop that had been converted into something that resembled a sculptor's studio. This was the workshop of forensic artist and Vidoc co-founder Frank Bender, or, as he was better known, the recomposer of The Decomposed. Frank would spend the next few months using an array of molds, clay, and tools to create a model of what Jane looked like before her death and subsequent decomposition. This had the potential to be a huge asset to Sylvia and her team, as they had been operating without any real visual aid to help track down Jane's identity. In June 2005, Frank boarded a plane for Boulder with Jane Doe's reconstructed face in his carry-on bag. 
Sylvia, the detectives, and some representatives from the Vidoc Society all filed into his hotel room to finally get a look at the mysterious woman that they had devoted their lives to. The bust possessed an inherent sadness in her eyes that Sylvia found striking. Perhaps it was just Sylvia's own bias, but it seemed as though there was an unmistakable anguish about her. Seeing Jane, or seeing her likeness replicated in silicone and clay, only intensified Sylvia and her team's devotion to the case. And the very next day, when the reconstruction was displayed in front of a packed press conference full of reporters and bolder citizens, it had the very same effect. Tips on Jane's identity had been pouring in since the investigation reopened. But after the reveal of a reconstructed face, the team found themselves inundated with new leads. My grandmother, Naomi, well, she left home in April of 54. No one ever heard from her after that. About a year before she left, she got engaged to this awful fellow. Abusive and a drinker. When you look at the pieces, it all adds up. She's your Jane. I can promise you that. My cousin's name was Patsy. And believe me when I tell you, she's the one. She went on a trip with her husband and never came back. Only the husband sure did. And he bragged to everyone in town about how he had beaten her to death. Yep, my Aunt Edna. My uncle murdered her out in the Rockies and must have dragged her body out to the creek. Makes sense. He used to go fishing there all the time. It all adds up perfectly if you ask me. Unfortunately, all it took was a cursory look into any of these alleged stories to tell that they were all dead ends. In fact, just about every lead that the team had received since they got started back in 2001 had fallen short. But everything changed in the summer of 2005. The newest researcher to join Sylvia in her search for Jane Doe's identity was Denver resident Cindy Eichhorn. One day, while the two were going over old newspaper articles, Cindy asked Sylvia if she had ever looked into Harvey Glattman. Glattman was an infamous serial killer in the Colorado area. Sylvia was shocked that she had never heard of him, but as soon as she started digging around, she could not believe what she found. Article after article was published about how Glattman had confessed to the murder of three young women in 1954. Sylvia also found interviews published with Sheriff Everson explicitly stating that he considered Glattman to be a prime suspect in Jane Doe's murder, as Glattman had a long history of terrorizing women in the area. While the mystery of Jane's identity was still at large, Sylvia had a feeling that they may have just found the man who murdered her 60 years ago. Thanks for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Jane Doe. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found Someone's Daughter in Search of Justice for Jane Doe by Sylvia Pedham to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Brian Green, Julian Smith, and Laura Faye Smith. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.